If you will, um, open with me to Judges chapter 17. We got a lot of ground uh, to cover tonight, um, but we'll try to finish up the book of Judges um, tonight. So, if you will, uh, when you get to uh, Judges chapter 17, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, uh, once again, we're so grateful to be gathered together. Um, Father, we're so grateful uh, to have a copy of your word uh, and, and so grateful um, that you have uh, been gracious enough uh, to teach us from your word uh, about yourself. And, and Father, I pray um, that uh, as we walk through these last few chapters of the book of Judges, Father, that um, that uh, your Holy Spirit would would uh, work in our hearts during our times been in your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to finish up Judges tonight. Um, just to kind of uh, help you kind of wrap your head around the way this book was written so we can understand what we come to. Because we know last uh, a couple weeks ago we finished up Samson, who was the last uh, recorded judge that we have. And then here at the end of the book of Judges we have two stories um, that... Uh, that are more stories about individual people. So thinking about the structure of the book of Judges, it opens up in the first couple chapters with a prologue, and it talks about uh, what was going on in the nation of Israel as a whole. And as each of the tribes went through um, inquiring of God, figuring out you know, which tribe should go up and, at first and, and take out uh, the Canaanites and take for themselves their inheritance, um, and so you kind of have chapter 1 is that. Chapter 2 is kind of a broad description of what was going on in the nation of Israel during this time. Of, uh, and, and it introduces us to the cycle that we see in Judges where the nation of Israel as a, as a general whole would um, go after idols. And then um, as a result of that, uh, God would punish them by having them being overtaken by, by um, a... Uh, a Gentile people that was around them. And then also, uh, after a time, they would uh, become sorrowful for how things had gone, and they would repent, and they would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. The judge would deliver them. And then they would have some time of peace, and then that time of peace would end up turning into idolatry, and the cycle would start over. So Judges, the author, included kind of a double prologue. And then in the middle of the book, Chapter 3 all the way through chapter 16, um, it goes through the 12 different judges over, the, over this time frame. Um, and some of these judges, we get a lot of detail about them. Some of these judges, we get a verse. Um, and it's just kind of different. And then we get to the end, and then there's two stories uh, about individual people. And, um, and so it's kind of, think about it, the, the first two chapters or the nation as a whole. The whole middle section is different parts of the nation, and then the very last is two individual peoples. Thinking about the book of Judges, if there's one word uh, to describe it, it's depravity. It, it, is, it, is, it is an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament narrative version of Romans chapter 1 is, is what it boils down to. And so I think the author wrote it this way on purpose because we see um, that the, the sin that Israel was engaging in was chapter 1, chapter 2, nationwide. Um, the sin was, uh, was um, a part of the leadership that we see. 
Um, and then at the end, we see that the sin had reached all the way down to individuals. And so you see sin at every level of society all throughout the book of Judges. And then each of these stories, there's two stories. Both stories center around a Levite. Okay, So to a Hebrew reader, they would read this and say, okay, well, the Levite, this is supposed to be the best guy among us. This is supposed to be the priest. This is supposed to be the holy man who's set apart and should be above all of this depravity. And yet these two different stories include two different Levites, and these people are anything but that. Um, in fact, the last story, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't even give the man's name. Hardly anyone's named in that story. And the purpose of that is because it wasn't something particular. The, the, the atrocities that go on in the book of Judges was something that was not terribly unheard of because it's every man was engaging in this level of depravity on, on, to some degree or another. So... Um, the other interesting thing about these two stories is they both start with one simple sin between two people. One, one person sins against another person. And these particular sins spiral out of control and end up affecting the nation as a whole. So thinking about the structure of the book of Judges, we start off and we're talking about the entire nation of Israel and them uh, forsaking God, not, not being obedient, to what God had commanded them. And then we get down to the end and you say, okay, we're just going to talk about these individual people. But we see that even this small, seemingly small, individual sin that happened, one person sinning as another person, started this domino effect that ends up being this horrible, disastrous thing that took place. And it just spirals out of control. And so I think the author wants us to see this, is that that sin certainly can take place on a national level. Sin certainly can take place amongst leadership and among, among different parts of the nation. And sin certainly can take place amongst the individual, but it ends up affecting the whole. Um, so with that said, uh, we're at Judges chapter 17. We've got a lot of narrative to get through. I'm going to read some of it. We'll just talk about some of it. And we'll move along. So <clears throat> the first story that we have... I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 17, um, and then we'll talk about it. Now there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, uh, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of the silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he had made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons so that he might become a priest. And right now we are so terribly confused. There are so many sins and, and, and bizarreness that's taken place that you're like sitting there scratching your head. Like what, what in the world? It would take charts and graphs to explain everything that took place in this first part. And the, the writer sums it up. With this, with this classic refrain that we see four times here in, in these two stories, 
Verse 6, In those days there was no king in the nation of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the author's explanation of all of this craziness that we saw. So, just to recap, Micah stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. His mom cursed whoever stole the, the silver. He starts feeling guilty about it, confesses about it, and instead of cursing him, she blesses him by the Lord. It's okay, well, maybe these are decent people. And she says, because this wonderful thing has happened, I'm going to dedicate all of this money to the Lord. That's great. You're doing wonderful. And we're going to take 200 pieces of it and make idols for the Lord. <laughs> and what happened to the other 900 pieces, we don't even know. So her, her version of wholly dedicating 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord is to take 200 pieces of it and make idols of it. And then Micah turns around and says, well, great. I'm going to make this shrine next to my house. And we'll put these idols in there, and I'll also make an ephod and make some other religious relics and such, and I'll end up taking one of my sons and turn him into a priest. Why not? And that's kind of the idea that every man seems to have in the book of Judges, this attitude of, why not? Why shouldn't I have my own shrine at my own house? Why shouldn't I create my own religion or cult and make my son a priest over it? Why not? And the reason why is because there was no king in the nation of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 7, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then uh, the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he might find a place. And here we go, this guy has the same mentality Whatever I can find out, whatever I can figure out on my own. No, no inquiring of the Lord as to where he should be. So kind of to get a better idea of what's going on here. Um, as we know, the, the 12 tribes of Israel were each given an inheritance of land. So um, we go back to Joshua, and when they, when they came in and, and, and uh, God gave them the promised land, the land was divided up into several chunks, one for each tribe, with the exception of the tribe of Levi because they were supposed to be the priesthood. They were supposed to function in the temple and, and be the priest amongst the people. And as such, they lived all over the nation of Israel and um, so that their ministry would not be limited to one particular place. Well, this Levite, for whatever reason, was supposed to be in Bethlehem. Um, it could be because it says he's of Judah and of Benjamin, or not Benjamin, of Judah and of the Levites, that... His parents were each from one tribe and had intermarried, and so he ended up in Bethlehem. Um, you know, perhaps his mom was of the tribe of Levi. We don't know. But regardless, um, it looks like he's supposed to be in Bethlehem, and for whatever reason, he decides he's going to go see if he can find a better deal elsewhere. Um, so already we're kind of wondering about this Levite and like, well, okay, how, how good is this guy really? Um, because he doesn't seem like he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Um, so, verse 8, Then the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I might find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and my father, dwell with me, and be my father, and be a priest to me, and I will give you ten, ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and uh, your maintenance, or whatever expenses you have. 
So the Levite went in, the Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me, seeing that I have a Levite as a priest. So once again, this is very, very classic idolatry. We're taking a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, and trying to use things, means, our own means, to manipulate God into blessing Him. And so he's treating God just like one of the Canaanites would, would interact with their own God. Um, verse 18, In those days there was no king in the nation of Israel, uh, as if we had forgot. And in, in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. Why did Dan not have an inheritance? Do you all remember? The very last verse of chapter 1 in Judges. Go back with me. This is where we're going tribe by tribe and start off with Judah and Judah goes and conquers this city and this city and that city and takes their inheritance and then it moves to the next tribe and the next tribe and the next tribe and the next tribe. And then we get to verse 34 where it's going to talk about the tribe of Dan. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country for they did not allow them to come into the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount, he- in Mount Heres and Aijalon and Shalbim. And, but when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they made them forced labor. Uh, the borders of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akerbim to uh, Selah and upward. So the reason the Danites did not have an inheritance not was because God didn't give them one, because they weren't obedient to go take the inheritance that God had given them. They didn't put their faith and trust in God to, to help them to crush these Amorites that were residing in the land that had been given to them. So the Danites are uh, bemoaning the fact that they don't have an inheritance, but it's of their own fault because of their disobedience. All right, so uh, verse 2. So the, Dan, the sons of Dan went from their family, uh, sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtal, to spy out the land and to go search it. And they said to them, Go and search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. While they, when they were there near the house uh, of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite, and they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here, and what are you doing in this place? And what, what uh, do you have here? He said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me, and he has hired me, uh, and I have become his priest. They said to him, Inquire of God, please. Uh, that we may know whether or the way in which we are going will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. Um, If you have... Rob, what does the ESV say when it says, rather than Lord's approval, what does it say? In verse... uh, Yes, verse 6. Is under the eye of the Lord. So that's a better translation of the Hebrew. Basically, this guy doesn't inquire of the Lord. He just gives them this fortune cookie response and says, God's watching you, which can be very comforting and quite terrifying. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's very comforting to think God's watching over you and protecting you. It's also quite terrifying to say the eye of the Lord is on you, you know, that God's watching you. So, and I think this is on purpose. I think. 
I think this guy probably didn't have a really great relationship with God at this point, if we can imagine. I mean, he's, he's living in this dude's shrine and, and helping him and his whole family or this whole city or whatever engage in idolatry. Um, and so he just kind of gives them this fortune cookie response, and they take it to mean whatever they want, want it to mean. Um, and, you know, just as an aside, this is so true of several churches today is we have fortune cookie sermons filled with catchphrases and, and, and philosophy and psychology and all of this business. And no one, you know, of these folks are actually inquiring what the Word of God says. Instead, they're just giving out this, this advice, basically. So that's what the, uh, that's what the, the Levite tells them. Um, so anyways, these uh, five spies... They move on from Micah's house and they find this city called Laish um, that's far in the north of, of uh, Israel and the territory. And they look at it and they say, well, this is a good city. There's not really many defenses. The folks are living here. They're very peaceful and there's, they're kind of far from other cities that might come to their aid. So this is a fantastic place for us to just come in, ransack it and take it over and make it ours. And there should be little repercussions for it. So they go back to the camp uh, with, the, with the other folks from the tribe of Dan. And uh, they tell them about this. And they tell them about this city, and they say, okay, well, let, let, let's go. And they said they even tell them, hey, God, God has told us this is going to work out for us, because they had talked to the priest. As they're going by um, Micah's house, the whole 600 soldiers and then their families and their, their whole camp, they're migrating up to Laish to take this place over. They... They come to where Micah's house is, and they say, hey, wait a minute. Um, and uh, they, let me find it. Um, um, so they come to verse 14. Uh, then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish said to their kinsmen, do you know that in these houses right here, there's an ephod and household idols and a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, consider what you must do. Let's think about this, and let's think about what's most advantageous for us to do. And so the tribe of Dan decides to go into Micah's house and do a shrine. They tell the priest, is it better for you to be the priest over just one household, or how would you like a promotion? How would you like to be the priest over the entire tribe of Dan? And he decides, okay, I think that's a better deal. Of course, the alternative was that they would probably kill him and you know take all the stuff. So he figured... This is a much better route to go. So they steal all of the idols. They steal all the stuff that's in Micah's house. And uh, they take the priest with them and go. And Micah gathers up his family members and, and neighbors and all that. And they march out after the Danites and uh, are, are um, going to go try to get his stuff back. When they approach the Danites, the, uh, the men of Dan basically tell him... Um, First off, you need, to, you need to shut your mouth and don't say anything else. Otherwise, fierce men may fall upon you. So they kind of give this weird like third-person threat saying, well, something bad might happen to you if you don't stop talking. So Micah decides to go back to his house, and he's distraught. And it's so funny because the way this whole, this whole scenario with Micah got started was because he had stolen from somebody. And now... Everything that he had stolen is now being stolen from him. Um, it's very, very interesting that uh, um, the way that Micah says this in verse 24, he says, You've taken away my gods which I have made. 
and the priest and have gone away. And what else do I have? So it's very interesting that these gods that he made, that he put so much faith in, are completely powerless to protect him. Um, and these gods are made by him rather than um, the God he should be worshiping is the God who made him. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting turn of phrase there, and it kind of helps you kind of understand better uh, about uh, Micah. One, and this is the last that we hear about Micah. The story moves on, um, but it's kind of interesting to think of his name. His name means who is like Yahweh. And the very first time his name is mentioned in the, uh, in the story, it is written in the Hebrew like that. This dude's name is who is like Yahweh. So it uses God's covenant name. There could be no mistaking. Every other instance in the story, Micah's name is who is like generic God. So it's kind of interesting the way the storyteller is giving a, uh, the Hebrew reader that clue of, uh, yeah, you thought this guy was going to be a true faithful believer, and it turns out he's just trying to find any God rather than trying to find the one true God, Yahweh. Um, <clears throat> so he turns and goes back to his house. Verse 27, Then they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and came to Elaish, a quiet a people, quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them, but because it was far from Sidon, and they had uh, no dealings with anybody. And it was in the valley, uh, which is near Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. They called the name of the city Dan, after the name Dan of their father, who was born in, in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan... The son of Gershom, so now we finally get this Levite's name. His name's Jonathan. His dad's name was Gershom, who is the son of Manasseh. He and his sons were the priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. Now, if you've got New American Standard, there's a little bitty letter subscript next to the name Manasseh. And if you drop down to the bottom of your Bible, what does it say? Some... What Moses. So Moses' name in Hebrew is three Hebrew characters. Manasseh is the same three Hebrew characters with the addition of what would be their equivalent of the letter N. When the, Hebrew, when the, uh, the rabbis copied the book of Judges over and over again, this story, the fact that this Levite was the grandson of Moses, was so embarrassing to them for Moses that they wrote in the letter N to make the name Manasseh so that it wouldn't be as connected with him. And the reason that we know this is when you look at the actual manuscripts, it's got the three letters for Moses' name, and then it's got a little bitty N with like a little arrow pointing in, like, like when you write something in pen and mess it up. So they added that little letter N in to keep the shame of what's going on here. But that's supposed to be the punchline of the whole story, is this level of depravity is two generations from Moses. This guy was Moses' grandson, and yet they are so clueless about how to worship God. This reminds us of in the prologue to the chapter to Judges, I think in chapter 2, it tells us that, uh, that the generation that had, that had come from the wilderness and had, had, had uh, carried out all the exploits of the, of the book of Joshua, 
um, that that, lived, that generation lived and died, and then the children that came up after them had no knowledge of God. And this is proof of that. This is two generations from Moses, um, and they have fallen into this degree of depravity. Um, so it's just really, really interesting to look at and, and to think about that uh, it doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter if you're John MacArthur's grandson or not. It doesn't matter you know, who, you, who uh, was your father or your grandfather. This level of depravity happens. And this, is, this goes to show what happens when we do not teach our children what the Word of God says. Um, and so that's supposed to be the punchline of uh, the, whole, the whole book, this whole story um, that uh, is supposed to give the reader shock um, because this is just Moses' grandson that took place. All right, then we come to the next story. This is absolutely the darkest, most disturbing story in all of Scripture. Um, it, is, uh, it is so, so incredibly dark and depraved. This is where Romans chapter 1 is, is um, Paul talking about the depravity of mankind metaphorically. The author of Judges is displaying the depravity of mankind in, in a real story that really happened um, as an example to what happened. So we'll dive in and we'll, we'll talk about this to the degree that we can. Um, now it came about in those days, verse 1 of chapter 19, there was no king in Israel, and there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem and Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him. She went away from him to his father's house in Bethlehem in Judah, and there was a period, was there for a period of four months. All right, so let's talk about what's going on here. Um, the first story happened with a Levite that was supposed to be in Bethlehem, and he traveled up to the hill country of Ephraim. So thinking about uh, the history of the, Hebrew, the Israelite people, okay, and uh, thinking about the geography here, Bethlehem was part of the southern kingdom, okay, part of Judah, and, and Ephraim was part of the northern kingdom, part of Israel. So after, after David, after Solomon, and then Solomon's two sons, the, the kingdom split, the book of Judges would have been written sometime after the kingdom split. And the point of this is that the depravity was not limited to the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom. So when this was written and you had the two kingdoms, and let's say they both read the book of Judges, it would be really easy for them to look at and point at and say, oh, well, you know, Judah, they're the ones that are depraved, not us. Or Israel, you know, Judah would say Israel's the one that depraved, not us. But it's interesting that both of these stories take place in Ephraim and Bethlehem, and both of them start off in the opposite place, and there's travel between those two cities. So the author's making the point in picking these two stories that this level of depravity was not specific to either the northern tribes or the lower tribes. It was all throughout Israel, all the way from Bethlehem to... Um, all the way from Bethlehem, a more southern city, all the way up to Dan, which was the most northern city. Um, so anyways, just a, just a little tidbit there. So uh, <clears throat> let's see, verse 3, uh, let's see, verse 2. But the concubine played the harlot against him. We don't really know what this means. It could be that she had adultery. It could be that they had an argument. Um, it, it's really hard to say, but whatever took place between this couple, 
um, caused her to run away from him back to her father's house in Bethlehem. Now, for a woman to commit adultery would be punishable by death. For a woman to run away from her husband and seek a divorce would be terribly shameful for the woman and her entire family. So this whole situation is, is just not great. She goes back to Bethlehem, and uh, the, the Levite man takes about four months uh, and then decides he's going to go after her. Um, not sure why he waited four months. The text doesn't tell us. But anyways, he shows up at father-in-law's house, and they gladly welcome him. And the father-in-law is incredibly hospitable. Um, they stay there three or four days, and they're going to pack up and leave. And the father-in-law's like, no, you don't want to leave yet. Stay and eat lunch. And then when lunch rolls around, he's like, well, you know, it's so late in the day. You should probably just stay another night. And this rocks and rolls for two or three days. And so you get the idea that either this father of this, of this lady from Bethlehem knows the character of this Levite and is so scared for his daughter to go back with him. Or that he knows what happened between them and that what she did is punishable by death. And if this Levite were to press charges against her for this action, that she would be executed. So it's almost like the, the father-in-law is trying so hard to butter up the Levite so that he doesn't do uh, anything harmful to the concubine. Um, and of course, you know, this is, this is very, very typical... Uh, uh, Near Eastern hospitality that we see where you're, you're almost just overwhelmingly hospitable um, to folks and, and almost to the point of kind of being obnoxious in air culture that we look at it and see. Um, but he keeps on and keeps on. And finally, uh, I think on the fifth or sixth day, the Levite's like, that's it. I'm out of here. You're not talking me out of it. But they ended up leaving um, kind of in the middle of the day or maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so it was later when uh, later than they wanted to leave, and it was going to make it to where their journey back to the hill country of Ephraim was going to take them be overnight. They were going to have to stop somewhere. So verse 10, the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposite uh, Jebus, that is Jerusalem. Now at this time in Israel's history, Jerusalem was not part of Israel. It was, it was inhabited by the Jebusites, by, by Canaanite people. Um, and uh, there were uh, with him a pair of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was also with him. When they were near Jebus, uh, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, uh, uh, Please come and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. He said to his servant, Come and let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. And they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into their house to spend the night. So this is very common practice among Israelites at this time, that when you were traveling, you would try to find a city that was friendly to you, a city of the nation of Israel, so that someone would be hospitable to you, much like the father-in-law was hospitable to him. Um, but no one would take him in. And immediately, we start to get uh, little hints about what's about to happen. Because we've heard this story before, right? We've heard this story in Genesis chapter 19. 
when uh, the, the two angels went to visit Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah and they didn't have anywhere to stay and they're out there in the middle of the city square. These two, par- these two stories are, are intentionally written in such a way that you're like, oh, yeah, this is just like Sodom. This is just like Sodom. It's just like Sodom. In fact, the, the one, uh, their one section where it describes what happened overnight um, is, is written so incredibly similar to the account from Genesis chapter 19, that that section includes the same number of Hebrew words. And it even includes many of the same Hebrew words. The narrative is almost parallel. And the point of that being is that you thought Sodom and Gomorrah was bad. Look at what's going on in Israel. Um, So uh, the Israelites have become so Canaanized. They they have become just like the, the nation around them and as we'll see, as this story rolls out, it actually ends up being much worse than what took place in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. So we'll keep going, and obviously some of this story we're not going to read. Um, some of this story you're just going to have to sit down and read through it silently to yourself. Um, otherwise, you'll have a lot of explaining to do to your kids that I don't plan to do. So we'll just roll through this and, and, uh, and get through it as best we can. Uh, so verse 16, Then behold... An old man was coming out of his field from work at the evening. Now he was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, and he was only staying in Gibeah. But the men, uh, let's see, now, uh, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but now I'm going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Some of your translations may say he was going to the house of the Lord. Um, so already he's kind of being not really genuine about the whole reason he was traveling to Bethlehem and back to Ephraim. But anyways, we'll move along. Um, so da, da, da. verse 19, yet, uh, uh, let's see. But now I'm going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, uh, your maidservant and the young man who is with you, and there is no lack of anything. Uh, The old man said, Peace to you. Only let me take care of all of your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into the house and gave the donkeys food and uh, washed their feet, and they ate and they drank. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house. And this is the portion that is exactly like uh, the account of Genesis chapter 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, They surround the house. They demand that he send the man out. And you see how it turns out, much like the account in... in, in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, that Lot initially offers his two daughters and says, I'll take these two daughters and throw out here. Well, in this situation, he's got one daughter and the Levite's concubine. So he says, offers them, I'll take these women and and throw them out there to you. And uh, the men reject this. And finally, the Levite, without asking or saying anything, just grabs the concubine and throws her out into the street. Um, you can read what, what takes place in the very next... And it, he does that and then goes to sleep without seemingly any care for her welfare at all. Um, the very next morning, he, he uh, gets up. Or it says, uh, verse 26, 
Uh, As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until the full daylight. When her master arose in the morning, he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Not to check on the woman, not to anything, just... I got I got business to attend to. I got to get back home. Let's just go. Um, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, "Get up and let's go." But there was no answer. So right now we see just what kind of man this Levite is. He, for the sake of preserving himself. He took the woman that he should be caring for and protecting and threw her out to these animals. And they uh, injured her to the degree that um, she is unable to speak. I don't know if she's dead at this point. The scripture doesn't say. I kind of get the feeling that she's not. She had crawled to the door, put her hands on the threshold, and is trying to claw her way back into the house. And she's lying there so weak and so injured that she can't even speak when he tells her to get up. He treats her like nothing more than a piece of livestock or piece of property. And this is the part where we're all supposed to be incredibly appalled at this man. Um, But yet, this was the culture of the day, that women were nothing more than property. And um, that uh, this was not too terribly uncommon a way for a man to treat a woman. And we look at it now uh, in our today and our day and age, and we are completely appalled at this and, and and we shake our heads in shame and oh, how in the world could this ever take place? How could this ever happen? And yet, do we not live in a society that also treats women like property frequently? Are we not guilty of this ourselves? I think at this point, rather than spending our time pointing fingers at this Levite, we should as men, sit down, search our souls, and see, are we guilty of this sin? And I would dare say, each one of us at some time or another has been. And this is, this is just like, for me, this is just like Romans chapter 2, verse 1, where, oh, you who are guilty, and you who are, judge others and are guilty of the same thing. And it, 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 I think that is the, what the author is trying to go for, is we're supposed to be so incredibly appalled at this man's sin, and yet, at some point, contemplate, wait a minute, do I have this degree of sin? Um, so, moving right along, there was no answer, verse 28. Then he picked her up, put her on the donkey. The man arose and went to his home. Uh, when he entered the house, he took a knife, laid hold of the concubine, and cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel, all who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider this, take counsel, and speak up. And I think that's the part where you look at this and say, wow, how far we have fallen. And no doubt there are several instances of of things that happen in our society that we look at and are completely appalled and say, wow, how far we have fallen. Um, And this is just like one of those. So the deal with sending pieces of her all over Israel, um, nothing like this had happened and you're kind of shaking your head like, why did he do that? We find something similar happen with Saul in uh, 
1 Samuel 10, thereabouts. The Amorites have uh, attacked a city. He's just been named king. He comes in from the field after plowing with oxen, and they tell him the Amorites are threatening this city, and he uh, sacrifices the oxen and cuts them into pieces and sends them out to the nation of Israel and says, uh, basically, if you don't come and help us fight this problem that we have, the same thing is going to happen to your oxen. So that's kind of the message that we think that the Levite is sending. And we'll see that that's what happens in, in the next chapter, that this was, uh, this was the Levite's way of uniting the whole uh, of Israel to come against and fight against this great injustice that's happened. Um, and so the, the implication is, come and join with me and fight against this atrocity, otherwise this same thing will happen to your wife. <clears throat> Very uh, poignant way to get his message across. <clears throat> verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, so from the very top city to the very bottom city, the whole nation of Israel, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. The chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, uh, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Uh, but the men of Benjamin rose up against me, surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they killed my concubine instead. And... They, uh, so I took hold of the concubine, cut her into pieces, sinners throughout the land, uh, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. So the story he tells is just a little different than what happened. Um, in here, you know, he's the good guy. He was seemingly innocent in all of this. He doesn't mention how he threw her out the door. You know, doesn't mention how she may have been alive whenever he did go to cut her up. He doesn't mention all this stuff. He makes them out to be the bad guy, and he's the good guy. He ju tries to justify himself uh, before all these people. Um, but like Cody talked about this morning, you know, the, the, the nothing before God is going, is going to be hidden, that everything is going to be laid bare. Um, so we'll keep going. <clears throat> then all the people arose, verse 8, as one man, saying, Not one of us will go into his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we'll do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we'll take ten uh, men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of a thousand, a thousand out of ten thousand, to supply food for the people, that when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they've committed in Israel. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered together against the city, united as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place amongst you? Now then, deliver up the man, the, worth, the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Israel would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. Um, the sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities, of, uh, from the cities to Gibeah to go out in battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 men 
were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So they've got 700 Navy SEALs, apparently, that are in that city as well, going against these 400,000 men from the nation of Israel. Um, and so what comes next is kind of a reverberation of what happened in chapter 1, where they inquire of the Lord, who will go up first? And, but the problem is, the battles from chapter 1 were battles that were sanctioned by God. They were against people who were uh, under the judgment of God for, um, for idolatry and that God had, had, had uh, destined for destruction. And it was God's will that they go out and take the land. In this instance, they never asked God what they should do. They just said, which one of us needs to go fight first? I'm ready to fight. And so God tells them, then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first, just like in chapter 1. So long story short, Judah goes up and they, they go against uh, the, the town of Gibeah, which was kind of up on a hill, so it was kind of a defensive position. So um, very hard for them to take, even though they far outnumbered the Benjaminites in Gibeah, uh, they have an astounding loss and they have to retreat. Then another tribe goes up and they have an astounding loss and then they retreat. Um, and so they come back and they're like, okay, what, what, what do we do now? Verse 27, um, Then the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was, was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister to those in those days. So once again, the last story was about Moses' grandson. Now this is Moses' grandnephew. So the same, same generation. So these two stories took place kind of around the same time, just two generations after the narrative that we have uh, with Moses and, and, and Joshua. Um, so anyways, uh, um, now they've, they come to God with their tail tucked between their legs. They fast, they make sacrifices, and they ask God, should we even be doing this? Should we even go up against uh, Benjamin? Uh, and uh, uh, God tells them uh, at the end of verse 28, uh, Go up for tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against, Biz, against Gibeah just like the other times before. Except here they have a different battle plan. Um, if you remember, if you've read through the book of Judges, you know, you've got uh, the very first conquest where they take over Jericho. Very memorable story. Shortly thereafter that, they get, uh, they get beaten at the city of Ai uh, because one guy named Achan wasn't doing what he's supposed to do. And... Once they figure that out and deal with that problem, they go back to Ai to try to take it over, and they have this new battle plan. And the battle plan is that they will attack the city head-on, just like as before, and they'll have another army behind the city that's waiting in ambush. And once the, once the inhabitants of the city come out to fight them, they will uh, run away and make them chase them out into the wilderness. And all the men, all the soldiers leave the city, and then that ambushing team comes in and takes over the defenseless city. And as soon as they take it over, they set fire to it. Smoke starts billowing out of the city, and the Benjaminites realize they're defeated. And this, this plays out the same exact way as it did in Ai back in the book of Joshua. Same story here. So um, they, they uh, attack. The Benjaminites run out after them. 
Then the city gets destroyed by the ambushing army that was behind them, and they realize that they're defeated, and now they're stuck between two armies out in the wilderness, out exposed, and they utterly defeat them all the way down to 600 men. And the 600 men realize that they're beat, and they surrender. But then the Israelites continue going city by city throughout the tribe of Benjamin, destroying those cities, every man, woman, child, cow, chicken, blade of grass is killed. And they, they subsequently commit genocide against the entire tribe of Benjamin, all except for these 600 soldiers that had surrendered and become basically what would be prisoners of war. Um, and it's kind of interesting because this was the way that God had intended to judge the Canaanites. And the children of Israel couldn't stomach it. They couldn't do it. They, didn't, they were not faithful to carry out God's judgment as He had directed them. And yet, when it comes to this issue that took place in Gibeah, they don't seem to have any problem going and slaughtering entire cities of women and children and innocent folks that had nothing to do with all this. And they leave 600 men. Verse 21, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give a daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? So what has taken place is Benjamin is gone because of them, because of their depravity. And yet now they're crying out to God, why did this happen? Um, have you ever... Have you ever had your kids do something and you get onto them and then when they're having to be punished, they're like, oh, why in the world does this happen? And it's like, well, of course you know why it's happening. It's because of what you did. And, you know, so often we are the same. When we are disciplined and, and have things go awry in our lives, we fail to look at our own contribution to that problem and how that this is a consequence because of something that you did and you're being judged because of something that you did. Well, the nation of Israel is now being judged by God and this is, this is a, a narrative version of God gave them over that we see in, in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them over to this. God allowed this atrocity to take place as judgment against them for their depravity. So rather than inquiring of God what they should do, they come up with their own plan. So they've got 600 men, and they, that's all that's left of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So there's no way for the tribe of Benjamin to carry on without these men having wives and being able to start families and build the tribe back up. So they sit around and say, well, we told them we couldn't give them our daughters, but there was one city that did not come to the meeting that we had, and thus they did not take this oath. So we can probably bend this rule a little bit and them give their daughters to the men of Israel, or to the men of, of Benjamin. So they go to this city, um, uh, Jabesh-Gilead, and they, uh, this army uh, goes and takes over the city and kills every man, woman, child um, amongst them except for 400 women who had not been married. And they gave these 400 women to... 600 to 400 of the 600 left uh, that, of, the, of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, now they still have another problem. Well, we still have 200 men that don't have wives. And so there's this uh, festival that's coming up in Shiloh, and apparently some part of this festival includes dancing and all that, 
And uh, so whenever the, the dancing of the unmarried women breaks out, you know, whatever was going on, they told these other 200 men to lie in wait in the woods. And when the dancing starts, run out and grab one of these women and just take them for yourself. And that's how they solved the problem <laughs> that they had created by committing genocide. And uh, this is what they decided to do. Um, so how interesting is it that a war that was started over the mistreatment of one woman ends in the mistreatment of thousands upon thousands of women and being slaughtered and 600 women and being taken forcibly into these marriages with the Benjaminites. And uh, so uh, we get to the end of that. That happened, and all these Benjaminites now have wives. And verse 24, the sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out uh, from there back to his inheritance, back to his home. And then we're left with the incredibly chilling words uh, that uh, have become so familiar in our ears. In those days, there was no king in the nation of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the author leaves us right there at that incredibly dark and depressing point. And, you know, you just find yourself reading this and you get to that last line and just stare at the period on the page and think, goodness gracious, that can't be it. But this is it. When mankind is in control, when mankind does what is right in their own eyes, this is what we produce. This is the best that we can come up with. Um, these two stories are about Levites, which should be the best of the best. They should be um, the most holy among them, and yet this is the best that they could do, the best they could come up with. And this is what happens when we're left to our own devices. Around here we've been talking quite a bit about the theology of sin and depravity. We've been talking about it in Romans 1 and Romans 2. We've been talking about it on Wednesday nights and, and talking about the theology of sin. Well, this is the narrative of sin. This is how it goes. It starts small. It starts as one thing, uh, a fight between a husband and a wife, or, or someone stole a little bit of money, and then it spirals out of control and becomes something that engulfs an entire nation and destroys so many lives. And yet, we refuse to acknowledge that. We refuse to look at our own lives and wonder how our own sin, how our own disobedience, although it may seem small, has effects that radiate out radiate out further and further and further than we ever thought or ever intended. Um, and we find ourselves time after time after time of messing up, time after time after time of disobeying and falling into these traps set by sin, yet we continue to find ourselves over and over again giving in to those same things. We continue to find ourselves trying to be our own king, trying to do what is right in our own eyes, trying to justify ourselves before others, much like the Levite tried to justify his own actions in front of the, in front of the council at Mizpah. Um, and yet, this story is as old as time. It's so, it's so incredibly common of a, of a type of story that they didn't even include the names because this is just, just like one of Aesop's fables that we hear that the story is, is, is um, so common that there's no, there's no point in even, even uh, saying exactly who it is or whatever because this is what happens every time. And yet we continue to fall into those same traps and we continue to act as if there is no king. But... I, 
And we get to the end, and if that is where it is left, if this is where it is left, then this is all that we're able to create. This is all that we're able to achieve. But grace is uh, God's grace. Thank God for God's grace that this is not where this book ends, that this book continues on. And look with me at the very next page at the, at the book of Ruth. And uh, I wish so bad that these books were one book so that we wouldn't get to the end of Judges and be so depressed, but that we would just move right along to the book of Ruth because look at where it all starts. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. So this story starts in Bethlehem, just like these other two stories started in Bethlehem. And so just by flipping the page for the next book, we get so much hope of, hey, wait, there are... There is hope for the children of Israel. And by extension, there is hope for us. Because when you get to the end of the book of Ruth, where does it end? It ends in a genealogy. It ends with talking about Ruth and Boaz and, and how that out of this desperate situation that Ruth ended, ended up in, that a child came out of that, a child named Obed. And that child had another child named Jesse. And that child had another child named David. And so we see that although... On the last page of Judges, there was no king in the nation of Israel and everything was terrible and disrupted and, and, and depraved and dark. And we'll flip the page to the next page and God's grace comes in a small little family in Bethlehem giving birth to a child. And of course we know, I'm not talking about David, I'm talking about the son of David. In the same city that all of this craziness took place, in the same city that was so incredibly dark... Um, there is light that has come because God in His, in His grace did not destroy the children of Israel at the end of the book of Judges. But by His grace, He took a Moabite woman and took, took a, a man of the town of Boaz and, and, and orchestrated their marriage so that they would have a child and then so forth and so on and so forth and so on until you get to the book of Matthew and you read that, that genealogy that ends in the name of our Savior of the one true judge that could actually deliver the people. None of these other judges that we've talked about have been able to deliver the people. Yes, they had some small victories at times, but all those victories were short-lived or marred by disobedience or immorality or something. And by the time we get to the last judge, Samson, there was no peace. There was no, there was no freedom from the oppression that was granted. It wasn't until David came that the Philistines were destroyed. And so, and likewise, it wasn't until the son of David came that the ultimate problem that these people and us, these people, face is sin that was completely destroyed for all time. And so, we leave the book of Judges and we are terribly depressed at what happened. Um, we need not look at these people and like when you get to the end of the chapter 1 of Romans, point the finger and say, oh yeah, they are terrible. Instead, we should look at our own hearts and say, no, that same sin that was present in these Levites and in all the other bizarre stories that took place in the book of Judges, that same sin uh, 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 tempts us every single day. And that same sin, while it may not seem to us that it ends up creating a genocide of an entire people group, um, it does have effects that radiate out from us. And that same sin has one solution. And it is nothing that mankind could have ever come up with. 
It is no grand plan or scheme like we see in the book of Judges that they try to come up with to fight this battle. There's one man, one name given under heaven that can give us relief from this enemy, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray.